Hello, I'm Georgie Barrett. And I'm Alex Goldstein. And welcome to the Sleep Life podcast, the show from Simba designed to help you unlock your sleeping potential. Whether you have trouble getting your head down or you're interested in boosting your performance, this podcast is all about realising that sleep is very much at the foundation of everything we do whilst we're awake. So in this series, we're looking at different areas of our lives where sleep really matters and trying to come up with tips and strategies for getting the balance right. And in this episode, we're going to be looking at sleep and work. Alex, why is this something we need to talk about so desperately? It's no secret that people are really working harder than ever. One study found that the intensity of work in Britain has increased dramatically over the past couple of decades. So actually, since 1992, the number of jobs requiring what is termed as very high-speed work has almost doubled. But also, we're living now in a very always-on culture. So even when we're not physically at work, we feel obliged to check emails or just do that one last check before bed. And people are constantly kind of worrying and taking work with them wherever they go. So we're working harder. We're not switching off. um, And certainly sleep is the thing that gets sacrificed. Surely all this does have a really obvious detrimental effect on work. Absolutely. So if you're not sleeping well, there is evidence to show you're not as good at making good decisions, you're not as creative, you're not as effective. So there's a very good argument that if you're working too many hours, you're working harder, but not necessarily smarter. But also if you're working so hard that you're sacrificing your sleep, there are bound to be some physical health repercussions as well. Okay, so this really is something that affects everyone, which leads me nicely on to introducing our guest for today. Um, I'm very excited to welcome someone who's really close to the subject. He's a Silicon Valley futurist and author of a book titled Rest, Why You Get More Done When You Work Less. A very warm welcome to Alex Sujung Kimpang. Alex, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Another Alex, doubling up. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Alex, we always start off by asking our guests how they slept last night. So how did you sleep? Um, I'm still fighting jet lag from flying over from California. So I mysteriously woke up about 2 a.m. and then kind of drifted for the rest of the night. So, so not very well in conclusion. No, not as well as I would like. And how about you, Alex? Did you sleep okay last night? I actually did have quite a good night. Yeah, I was um, testing out a sleep tracker because I'm always interested in testing out these things and it seemed to go quite well. And, so. and the report, the, the stats back looked good. It, they did indeed. <laughs> always reassuring. Alex, let me start by just speaking about some of the news stories that are out there at the moment. We certainly hear the likes of Elon Musk working these 120 hour weeks and even the likes of Donald Trump says that, you know, he only sleeps four to five hours a night. Do these stories worry you? Yes. Well, I think in in those cases, you can make the case that the results sort of speak for themselves. Um, (laughs) I don't know what you possibly could mean. (laughs) But, you know, I think that they, you know, they speak to a cultural shift that we've experienced in the last, you know, sort of 30 or so years where, you know, it used to be that Long hours and overwork were something that you did earlier in your career, and then once you became successful, you were able to kind of enjoy the fruits of that early labor. You know, one of the characteristics we have these days is that success is sort of defined in part by how many hours you work. It's almost it, a badge of honor sometimes. Precisely, yes. I mean, there is there is a kind of sense of of it being heroic to work enormously long hours. Um, Alex, there are some people out there that actually can physically get by on very little sleep. So there have been some studies that suggest that about 1% to 3% of the population may carry a gene that allows them to function well, uh, function as well as the rest of us might on more sleep with less. That said, 
whether or not those people who are very famous for sleeping very short hours are part of the kind of so-called sleepless elite is one question. The other is what the long-term sort of health effects are. So even if you appear to be functioning well, are those people with that kind of genetic difference from the rest of us actually healthy in the long term? We don't really know. We don't know yet if it's something that we should wish for. And, and there's not many people out there who actually have it. It's like a tiny percentage. Tiny percentage, about one to three percent at best estimates. So almost definitely people don't have yeah. it, even if they think they're functioning. Definitely not me. So Alex, um, can we speak a little bit more about your book? Um, you've sort of written extensively on rest. Can you sort of expand on where all that began for you? Now, the book actually started with a sabbatical that I had here in England. A few years ago, I was at uh, Microsoft Research in Cambridge, and I had spent the last decade or so you know, as a consultant in Silicon Valley. And this is a life that involves lots of overlapping projects, multiple deadlines, you know, clients calling all the time. It's the sort of work that when it goes well, is really interesting and intellectually engaging. On the other hand, it's also a formula for for burning out sooner or later. And you know, when I got the opportunity to do the sabbatical and went over, I realized after a few weeks that I was getting enormous amounts of stuff done. I was having good ideas, talking to people, but I didn't feel the kind of time pressure, the sort of sense that there's always unfinished stuff there are always uncompleted tasks. Yes. yes. And it got me thinking that maybe our assumptions that those feelings and that style of working is both inevitable and almost desirable, that maybe that was actually backwards. It got me into looking at the science behind of things like work and overwork, sleep deprivation, and also diving into the lives of really creative and productive people, right? Nobel Prize winners, famous composers, and folks like this. And what I discovered was that those people actually worked in ways that were very different from what we imagine like the romantic genius or today's tech entrepreneur to be. You know, these were people who did not sacrifice themselves, but rather they were people who worked in very measured ways. They designed their entire lives around their work, but it didn't mean that they spent their entire day working. In fact, what they did was, no matter whether they were, you know, mathematicians or, you know, were novelists, they tended to work in highly focused periods of about four or five hours a day. And then they spent an awful lot of time resting, doing things that apparently were not at all productive. And for people who were, you know, super intense, who were in very competitive fields, this doesn't look like it makes a lot of sense until you get into the science of creativity and the science of rest. And what you, you discover is that we should think of work and rest as partners. So when it comes to rest and work, what sort of proportion of the day should we be doing? I, you know, okay, so people who have a lot of control over their schedules work intensively for about four or five hours a day. That's pretty much it. The rest of the day, it depends on essentially how much stuff you're able to outsource to other people or how irresponsible you're willing to be <laughs> about, you know, not talking to your agent or, or of, you know, or doing other stuff. But that, you know, that several hours of focused work is really the core of your day. You design your entire day around that and you do everything you need to in order to preserve it. 
And can you do that in just one stretch, that four hours? It's or? about, it's more like two two-hour periods with, you know, a little break in between. And then you also have a period of another couple hours where you are out walking, you're gardening, you're doing, you're doing something that usually is pretty physical, that is not that cognitively intensive, that gives you a break from your, gives you a break from the work, but also gives your mind a chance to keep kind of casually turning over these things that you had just been working on, right? These ideas are still fresh in your mind. And so your sub, your conscious is able to keep working on them even when you put your attention elsewhere. That's really the kind of defining schedule for very creative people who have control over their time. In workplaces that take focus seriously, what they tend to do is set aside periods, again, of 90 minutes to two hours or so for or really focused heads down work. These are periods where you are free to knock not check email or answer the phone. You're also not supposed to bother your colleagues unless there's something absolutely critical that you have to ask them. And what these places report is that in a couple of those sessions, you're able to get enormous amounts of stuff done. And I think we all have this experience these days of feeling like in two hours, you know, working at home, you can get done as much stuff as you can in a day at the office, which is really bonkers, right? You know, the idea that you go to work and you spend it in meetings, you spend it distracted by Slack channels and email, et cetera, and then you have to leave work in order to get work done is really crazy. And so, you know, companies... So getting the company sort of in sync. Yes. So everyone's doing that focused work at the same time. That w- That's really helpful. That turns out to be really, really great. Yeah. And so obviously people can be quite different chronotypes and we'll mm-hmm. maybe need to go into a bit for listeners on what that is. But does, does choosing a particular time of day work for everyone or... So most of these places will reserve the mornings for these kinds of sessions. And I think the answer is it works well enough for most people. I think with the next generation of time designs in the office, I think in the future, maybe people will will have the tools to pay more attention to chronotype, you know, and to figure so, so out. Just to you know, clarify, chronotype, that's right. whether you're a night owl, a morning lark. Is that is that right? Yeah. You know, I think there's, uh, there's a recent book that talked about, I think, four different types, right? Wolves and bears and owls and... Dolphins, dolphins I think, was I think. the odd one yeah. out. Yeah. Right, exactly. I think I turned out to be one, which was a bit worrying. <laughs> um, partly it's a function of what time you want to go to bed and wake up. Another variable is how long it takes you to to wake up. And whether you are someone who is more likely to exercise first thing versus doing something more cerebral, let's say. Okay. How do you work out what type you are? There are some fairly simple things that you can do if you can take a couple weeks and not have an alarm clock and just see what time do you go to bed and and kind of wake up naturally. Um, That's the first thing you can do. And then there were, there's a whole checklist of, of other things that help you refine your understanding of exactly which of these four spirit animals you <laughs> It does sound like we're spirit animals, don't we? You're a dolphin. I am a dolphin, yes. You're a- um, I am a night owl, though I get up super, super early, basically because there's research that shows that night owls, when they work 
in the early morning tend to be more creative. I kind of I kind of just stumbled on this, right? I mean, I had for most of my life worked the way I had worked in college, you know, which is you kind of start serious work at about like 10 o'clock or so. <laughs> and with a regular job and with kids, this is not really practical. And so I tried flipping the day, getting up at 5 a.m. and kind of writing before everybody else was awake and, you know, when the day got started. And it was tough at first. But what I discovered was that for me, in those early hours, the kind of door of subconscious is still a little bit ajar. And that I was able to get a volume and quality of work done in those early hours that was very, very difficult to reproduce at any other time of day. And as it turned out, lots of the people who I write about in rest follow the same kind of pattern. And they also do something else that turns out to be really critical, which is they set up everything for the morning the night before. Sort of, right, for you know, the preparation. So you exactly. know exactly what work you're going to be doing. As soon as you sit down at your desk, that's ready right. to go. It means, first of all, you have fewer excuses to sleep in. But the other important thing is that it gives your subconscious an opportunity, essentially overnight, to think a little bit about what you're going to be working on the next morning. And there is, there is plenty of evidence that the subconscious actually does that. So what time would you be getting up when you were doing this? And are you still doing it? I, yes, I'm still doing it. No, it's, it's utterly, it's absolutely critical. I get up at five. And to be totally honest, I have alarms set at five and five after and five ten. And by, you know, by the five ten one, I'm, I'm, I'm really okay, serious I'm up now. now. I'm up, so, yeah. I'm up. <laughs> um, so, so you're a night owl. You're waking up at 5 a.m. Mm-hmm. How do you how do you get enough sleep in that case? Um, you go to bed a little earlier, but I also now have become a huge fan of naps. And rather than reach for you know another cup of coffee in the the early afternoon, I will often you know, nap just like 20 minutes or you know maybe 45, and that I find makes a very big difference in my performance in the the afternoon. So that's one of the ways that I uh, that I make it up. Alex, it's, it, people are quite divided on naps, aren't they, in terms of whether they're a benefit or not? I mean, if you read any of the kind of very many books about sleep and rest that have come out in the last few years, everyone will have a slightly different opinion on whether you should have naps at all. If you should, some people will say not after 2 p.m. Others will say, oh, you need to sleep for a whole sleep cycle, whereas some will say, no, it should only be 20 minutes or, or 40 minutes. So I think... I, I guess the answer is you've got to find what works for you and what makes you feel good about what you're doing and doesn't get in the way of you sleeping at night. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you're you're a power napper no longer than 20 minutes? Generally 20 minutes, you know, every now and then I'll go longer. But with practice, I have found that 20 minutes is plenty. And when you say practice, that just means you, that, just, you just set your alarm and say, hey, yeah. give it a go. That just means, yeah, rest is actually a skill, right? You know, It's perfectly natural like breathing, but it's also something that we can learn to do better, much in the same way that, you know, swimmers or opera singers or, you know, Buddhist monks learn to use their breathing in order to project to the back of the auditorium or to concentrate or, you know, to be able to outswim their opponents. And so I think that this has helped me understand the role that practice plays in improving one's capacity to rest, one's, you know, one's ability to rest in particular ways, 
and to get the most out of it. So you have quite a broad definition of rest then. It's not just sitting quietly or doing a power nap. There are, there are other things that right. you, you mentioned, gardening or walking your dogs. Right. You know, we tend to think of rest as idleness, right? You know, it's yes. like a remote in one hand and Slouched salty snack. Exactly. Is that bad? Right. No, and <laughs> I think that that certainly has its place. Surely that qualifies. <laughs> but if you think of rest as time that you spend recovering the mental and physical energy that you spend working, turns out there's a far broader range of things that provide that kind of restoration. So naps and sleep are an important one. But I think we, you know, lots of us have the experience of exercise turning out to be, you know, energizing rather than draining, mm -hmm. particularly if we do it regularly, of hobbies providing both kind of cognitive engagement and interesting challenges, but also helping us kind of clear our minds. So I think that taking this more expansive view of rest helps us better understand the importance of rest in our lives helps us appreciate the wider variety of things that can um, provide us with order with that kind of restoration and I hope helps us you know take it more seriously yeah how it's a symbiotic re relationship between the work and the rest precisely should we be looking specifically for types of rest that are opposites to what we do in our main day job so I mean I hmm. I sit in a chair a lot and write a lot mm -hmm. uh, not unlike uh, some of your work so should I be looking to do something? more active in that kind of rest period, specifically because what I do is quite sedentary? Short answer is yes. I think slightly longer answer is most of the time. There is nothing wrong with the occasional, you know, binge watch. I do it oh, too. <laughs> but for most of us, doing things that are kind of the physical opposite of our day jobs is sort of is really useful because we're humans, we have bodies, that kind of variety is good for us, first of all. But also, we tend to underestimate how physically demanding just sitting in a chair and using your brain turns out to be. You know, brains are very demanding. And the better physical shape you're in, the better you're able to serve them. And also, very creative people often have hobbies that provide some of the same psychological rewards or satisfactions as their work but in a very different kind of context. So, for example, mountain climbing is something that lots of scientists really enjoy and do really seriously. And they talk about climbing as being a lot like science. On the other hand, it's also different in the sense that it's highly physical. It's dangerous in a way that science is not. And so there's a kind of, you know, immediate responsibility and focus that's required. But it's also the case that at the end of the day, you've either reached the top of the peak or you haven't. You know, unlike in science where you can work on a problem for a year and the answer is... Maybe. Mm, yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. And so, know. <laughs> you know, and so there is a clarity in the reward and a quickness in the reward that is often all too elusive in their day jobs. And so it's a way of getting the things that they like about doing science in a different context and, you know, kind of almost sort of faster, more reliable sort of way. More regularly. Yeah. So I guess that that's taking rest in a big chunk if you go off and, you know, climb a mountain. Yeah. I'm going back to the working day. So mm -hmm. you sort of we wake up, you have that sort of concentrated period where I assume you try and not do sort of menial tasks. You're doing the sort of creative, big, maybe hard stuff. Start right. with that. Take a little break. 
go back and do a little bit more. Mm-hmm. And then, so would you say around lunchtime, taking another good chunk for, for some downtime then? And if people are going to the office, what's mm-hmm. the best thing to do during that lunchtime? Is it to go for a walk? Is it to get out? You know, how would you recommend people structuring their day in that way? In the office, if you can get out, that's terrific. There are plenty of jobs where that's not really much of an option. But if you're able to get out, stretch, go to the gym, or at least just go for a walk, that's terrific. The benefits of that are greater than you would expect. I mean, I think that more generally, the more people are able to set aside undistracted periods and the more they're able to have clear divisions between kind of work time and break time, the more they're going to be able to work effectively and, you know, in ways that ultimately generally tend also to make people happier. You know, I think one of the most frustrating things that you can have happen in a day is get to 5.30 and wonder, you know, what did I do with this day? Yeah, it's so frustrating, isn't it? Exactly. You just feel like you've been treading water all day. Right. And so I think that being able to divide up the day so that you are, you know, collegial and social and so on, but you're still able to get stuff done, you know, that's a valuable and rewarding thing both for the company and for you. You very much need to get the whole company on board with that, though. How do you sort of change that culture? That's a great question. And I think that, you know, we underestimate the degree to which these are actually social and organizational problems, right? We tend to think of focus as something that just happens between us and screens, you know, or whatever. But especially in the office context, Attention is a social resource. Your capacity to pay attention depends upon kind of office culture and how seriously people take the necessity for concentration and how much they respect each other's need for focus. And I think that, you know, what I am seeing in companies is that the solution of these these things turns out actually to be pretty simple. Lots of offices open plan offices that, you know, are now also very headphone friendly offices. I mean, basically, you know, the open plan office turns out to be like for for attention, you know, it's like Satan's floor plan. Um, <laughs> I was going to ask about actually, you talked about time design and office design. Mm-hmm. Open space, open plan offices were one of the first things I was going to ask because they're so common. I don't think I've ever worked anywhere that didn't have yeah. a majority open plan offices. Yeah. It's not a good idea. No, open plan offices are for most kinds of work terrible. Certainly a place that's nothing but open plan is inviting people to substantially lower their productivity. So how do you combat that if you are in an open plan office? Right. The simplest thing is have particular periods of time that really actually are literally quiet time. I mean, it sounds, you know, it sort of sounds like primary school. I I love, I respect quiet time. (laughs) I would actually love that, I think. However, it is simple and it is super effective. But mainly, it's a matter of the organization recognizing the value of focus and doing the couple simple things necessary to make it work. Another important thing is setting aside particular times of the day when you deal with email and voicemail and have those be the maybe sometimes the only times of day. Obviously, if you're in a client-facing role, this may be less feasible. But as a general rule, we have gone from email and voicemail and, you know, Slack, et cetera, 
being things that you know, operate at the periphery of our attention and make communication easier to being these things that have come to capture our attention and not let it go. And so I think fighting back against that, being able to make conscious choices about when you engage with these things is a really good thing. And organizations play a critical role in supporting and sustaining that. The last big thing I see is uh, dealing with meetings, you know, sort of making meetings really short, not including absolutely everyone who might be peripherally involved, making them more action-oriented as opposed to information-sharing type catch-up sorts of things. And, you know, all told, between those, you can save an awful lot of time. There's a wonderful study a few years ago by a uh, University of California professor named Gloria Mark who found that technology-related distractions, you know, the time spent answering a quick email and getting back on task or interruptions from other people asking, you know, can I, can I just ask you this one thing? You know, do you have just a second? Which always turns into 15 minutes. The distractions that come from unproductive meetings those eat up between two and four hours of productive time every day. Well, I can really relate to that. I always have a just do this list before you get on with the main task. Mm -hmm. And I always, you know, it never, it lo always looks quite sort of innocent. But actually, by the time I have responded back to that email or cross-checked that, then, it, you know, it, it is that sort of prime time that you're speaking about where you're working at your optimum right. that I'm spending quite menial tasks. And then I have to get around to it. Then I need to break some, you know, it's time for lunch. And it, yeah, it, ne it never quite gets going. Mm -hmm. But I think that, you know, thinking, thinking in terms first of, you know, your most important work that requires your highest level of focus, uh, doing that first and preserving, preserving and really defending the time around that and then dealing with your other stuff is a good way to work more effectively and more happily and to be more productive overall. Uh, and Alex, some companies even have sleep pods. I mean, Google's a famous one. Google is a famous one. So there are, I guess, a few of these sort of really huge companies that are trying to think of ways to give people a bit of work-life balance inside the office. So wh whether it's kind of providing meals or sleep pods or even like really lovely high-tech spaces with music and things like that. But I guess there are a couple of questions that come out of that. One is maybe, can can we relax enough to have a, a nap in an office, even if they're they're happy for us to do so? Like, do we get to get the feeling they're watching us over their sh our, our shoulders and maybe we shouldn't be doing that? And I guess the other thing is, you know, if so much of your relaxation, rest, life is happening at work, is there a danger that you're spending too much time there? Mm -hmm. um, the answer to the second is yes. The answer to the first is sometimes. So, <laughs> um, no, I think that the that the the evidence is that the perks at the office are less about the maintenance of work-life balance than keeping you at work longer. You know, the kombucha on tap and the custom-made, you know, pizzas, those are meant to get you to work through dinner. Um, as for sleep pods, et cetera, it really depends on the culture of the place. But I think Google is a place where, you know, it's incredibly data-driven. It's very much a, you know, a science-based place. And I think that the science around sleep and naps is pretty, you know, is pretty clear. And then there's a lot of variability on where the sleep pods are placed. I think people tend to use them more if they're in more private kinds of spaces. If they're just out in the open, 
who wants your nap to become a social event, <laughs> right? And it's also just weirder. Okay, um, <laughs> next to the toilet. Wouldn't, you wouldn't right. have taken that there, would you? No. Um, have you seen any businesses that are doing sort of this whole work-rest balance really well? Yes. You know, I've been looking at companies that have shifted to four-day work weeks or to six-hour work days. Without so four-day work weeks, does that mean working longer days or is it literally just cutting a day? It's off? literally cutting a day. It is, you know, it is doing in four days what people used to do in five. and But not working longer hours. No, no. Same hours, also not cutting pay. So essentially paid for five days work and doing five days work, but doing it in four. Wow. And I think that those are places that are seeing really enormous benefits in productivity improvements at work, improvements in office culture improvements in process, but also big personal benefits. People are literally healthier. You get fewer sick days. People are also happier because they're able to work better, but they also have more time to spend with their families. So I see places like that. So it actually as, works. Yes, it actually does work. Wow. And it works for a shockingly wide range of places, right? I mean, you might not be surprised if it's like, you know, creative agencies or stuff, but it's also something that you see in very large organizations. You know, the biggest companies in the world that are doing this are actually in Japan and Korea, languages that, by the way, have invented their own words for working yourself to death. Yes, I know. They're sort of famed for working really, really long hours. But there are e-commerce companies there that, you know, have a thousand people that have moved to four-day weeks or six-hour days and they've seen their productivity and their profitability go up since adopting them. Do you think we'll see it gain more traction? I certainly hope so. The fact that it is in so many places, in so many industries, in companies of such different scales suggests that you know, it's not something that just has to be mandated by governments, but rather it's something whose benefits you know, companies can discover for themselves. There's also lots of people who are now doing freelance work. How do you work out your personal schedule if you're sort of not bound to any metric by your company? Mm -hmm. The key here is self-experimentation. I mean, we are so accustomed to working as if, you know, every minute of the day is equal to every other. Yeah. Right. 9.01 and 5, you know, 5.29 are the the same. Right. And you can kind of throw tasks into any part of it. Humans don't actually work that way, right? There are particular times of day when we are better able to deal with, you know, complicated tasks, when we're better, you know, able to deal with stuff that requires only part of our attention, we're more social and less social. And I think that learning to pay attention to when we actually are best able to do these different things is an essential first step. I think that, you know, you you can, however, just learn plenty of stuff by being observant exactly you know by just kind of checking in with yourself yeah or of in the last 10 minutes have i actually been able to you know make real progress on this thing or am i just kind of grinding metal and is it the case that you know around this time of day every day sort of hit this wall and if you do that's a pretty clear sign that you should design your work day around that wall. Yes. Right. So that's when you insert your rest period. Exactly. How long would that be for? Like, you know, how much downtime would you need to then be able to power through to the next part of the day? Good question. So generally 
people are able to work in a sustained focused way for roughly 80 to 110 minutes or so. And then a break of about 20 minutes is generally sufficient to get people back to being able to, to work really well. It's also the case that people can do really serious work for about four hours a day. And this is true whether you're a mathematician, whether you are you know, a music student, it seems to be somewhat independent of age, but you know, those four hours are really, that's your golden period. That's when you really do your best work. That's such an interesting way of reframing it. So instead of feeling like you've been unproductive for parts of the day, it's actually saying, no, I only get four hours out of it. You know, make sure that you really champion and sort of um, make those four hours sacred. And then for the rest of the day, do other activities and that can help feed those four hours. Exactly. You know, and I think that the, you know, the other important thing is that unless you are in an industry where, you know, you are charging by the hour, Four hours is actually plenty of time to do good work. You know, four hours a day is what Beethoven needed to write his symphonies. It's what Darwin needed to write his books. You know, and so if you are able to design a day, and especially if you're able to convince your colleagues and your bosses that those four hours are worth designing around, then everyone will work better. They'll work more productively. You'll create more time for rest and, you know, uh, your lives will get better. Uh, you also travel a lot with work. You're mm -hmm. currently uh, still in San Francisco time or you've... Yeah, I'm, I'm roughly maybe in Iceland at this point. <laughs> Somewhere in between the two. Yeah. Alex, there's some quite interesting studies around what happens with people at work if they are sleep deprived. Yeah, so there is sort of a few different ways that uh, research has looked into the way that you respond to other people and respond to intellectual stimuli when you're when you're sleep deprived. Quite a lot that suggests that there's an increase in risk taking behaviour or bad decision making when mm -hmm. people haven't had a good night's sleep, and even more worrying that people don't actually know that they're making worse decisions. They can't sort of recognise it, and some people have likened it to basically turning up to work drunk. Uh, effectively. No, and I think this is this is especially worrying in organizations or in work that's highly complex because, you know, if a line in a contract makes the difference between being exposed for some sort of gigantic liability or not, if you've been up most of the night, you are a lot more likely to miss the implications of, you know, will versus shall on page 49, line 3. You know, I think another great example is with Samsung and the Galaxy 7 phone, you know, the famous exploding smartphone. And when they did a kind of postmortem of what went wrong with that phone, what they found was that, you know, the engineers had an opportunity to beat Apple to market with their iPhone 7, which was delayed. And so you know, the engineers were literally sleeping under their desks in order to get this thing out. They were doing enormous heroic amounts of work. And in the course of that, they missed this tiny problem with the batteries. And there was only like a million and one chance that this battery was going to go wrong. The problem is when you're manufacturing hundreds of millions of something. Then yeah. there will be a couple. Yes. A million, you know, or of a million to one risk all of a sudden turns into a class action lawsuit. Yeah. And I think it's illustrative of the fact that in today's high-tech world where you have enormously complicated products and services that 
can only function when they are made by people who are working at their best. You Desi want them to be working at their best. You want them to be working at their best. And the way that you do that is to design the culture and, the, and to design the environment to allow them to work well and to give them time for rest. And there's some quite interesting stuff around, um, quite a lot of research around pilots and when they should be taking naps. Yes, so I think there's been there's been research into military pilots, commercial pilots, the idea of kind of like power naps and when you sleep and how sleep is built in on board. So, I mean, we know from a safety perspective that sleep is absolutely fundamental to being able to even just do the basics of your job well. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. And I think that, you know, with transatlantic pilots are... are a fantastic example of, you know, sort of a profession where it's very clear that landing a plane with 500 people on it when you're refreshed and alert versus one where you're just a little bit groggy mm. makes an enormous difference in whether that plane comes down safely or not. That's a profession that has kind of moved to the forefront of thinking seriously about how you design flights and how you design days and rest time versus flying time so that at those absolutely critical moments, people are going to perform at their best. I mean, you're, you're talking there about so people with a lot of uh, the power of a lot of lives and sort of outcomes in their hands. Does that mean that we should be kind of circling back to people like Donald Trump's and Elon Musk's and saying your decisions affect a lot of people? It's not the kind of life and death situation necessarily that it might be landing a plane. But that means that you have an obligation to lead from the top to business leaders as well. You have an obligation to lead from the top and sort of making sleep and rest important to themselves so that everybody else does too. Yes, they definitely should. And I think that the history of diplomacy and political negotiation is full of stories of bad deals that are made at the last hour when people are really bleary. I mean, there's there's a kind of secret history of sleep deprivation and bad treaties and, and political judgments. So, Alex, we're coming to the end of the show now. I just want to leave the listeners with one really practical tip. What would be your sort of top tip when it comes to thinking about work and rest? The top philosophical tip I would leave is take rest seriously. On the practical level, I would say, you know, naps are great. <laughs> and they're one of the simplest things that you can do. And that the, you know, the 20 minutes of work time that you lose is more than made up for by the increased productivity that you have in the afternoon. So I think you know, I, I highly recommend them to everybody. Brilliant. Well, on that note, I'm liking the idea of the four-day week and I like the idea of scheduling in more rest. I agree with all your points. <laughs> um, Alex, thank you so much for coming on our show today. Indeed, thank you so much for coming. Oh, thanks. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Sleep Life. Make sure you subscribe and we'd also love it if you could rate or review this episode. Now, we talk a lot in this podcast about things you can do to change your day-to-day -day behaviour or sleep environment, all of which are really important. But one of the easiest things you can do is just making sure you're sleeping in a bedroom that's really set up to help you sleep better. And that's what Simba is all about. You can check out Simba's award-winning hybrid mattress at simbasleep.com, where you'll also be able to find the rest of Simba's range designed to solve common sleep problems. We'll also drop any offers in the show notes, so keep an eye out for that. 
We'll be back in two weeks' time, but watch out for a special bonus episode dropping next week, a sleep story written by Claire Storrow designed specifically to help you doze off. Until then, sweet dreams. Thank you.